in that sense. Just in a nutshell, for someone who might be a, a, a new member of a clinical team and they're just beginning to work with head and neck cancer patients, just in a nutshell, why is it considered a rough treatment? Well, I mean, I, I, uh, I think both the, um, the level of uh, obvious disfigurement or potential for ob- obvious disfigurement uh, in the surgery is, is probably um, disproportionately high in head and neck cancer. And I think also uh, the changes in functioning, both from surgery and from radiotherapy, are disproportionately high. There are just a lot of things going on in your head and uh, there's a lot to be affected. So eating, breathing, talking, swallowing, communicating, um, there's just a lot that happens in there and 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 it's very hard to spare the remaining bits, the non-cancerous bits. You know, I've visited your hospital, Calvary Mater, in Newcastle, north of Sydney, and I had the impression you get quite a lot of head and neck cancer patients. We're talking about managing distress. How do you know if a patient is distressed and needs extra help? And given the nature of this tough treatment, does everybody need help to some degree? Do you know what? My my response, I think, is... um, it doesn't matter if you know, you, you've got to deal with whoever's in front of you in that moment. So we have screening programs that... What does that, that mean? Then? What does that mean? What that means? Let me tell you. We have, we have screening programs that are designed to pick up people who, who are meeting sort of clinical levels of, of distress. And that might lead to an anxiety disorder or a mood disorder, or depression, something like that. But one of the things I think is really important and one of the things we're trying to do is train everyone, not just the psychosocial people, to be able to deal with whatever distress they're presenting with in that moment. Because I think, as you say, probably everyone needs to at least have their distress addressed. And that doesn't necessarily mean everyone has a mental illness or even needs to see a a mental health professional. But uh, I think one of the important things, and this really is the other thing that struck me, was um, uh, the gentleman Gary um, was saying, you know, the, the doctors and nurses, they, they can't empathise with that stuff. Um, I think, you know, it's one of those things that a lot of the, the technical specialties can get so caught up in the job that they're trying to do, which is very important and they do need to concentrate. But sometimes um, they can give the impression they can't empathise and can't connect and can't deal with distress even when it's sitting right in front of them. So groups like uh, like the doctors and nurses, but also radiation therapists and um, all of allied health, dietitian species are particularly important in this group. Um, there's a lot of stuff that, that can be done where we're not talking, they don't have to be specialists in mental health to deal with someone's distress in that moment. And that, that will be almost everyone. Can I now turn just to you? Yeah. G- give us two or three brief examples of what you actually do uh, mm-hmm. Uh, as a, a senior clinical psychologist, if someone is referred to you by a speech pathologist, a dietitian, a radiation therapist, a nurse, um, just concisely, what's the sort of help? Someone could be watching this. Should I go to the clinical psychologist? You tell me. Yes. Yes, they should. <laughs> Why? Um, we are problem solvers. And so what I do is first, well, broadly, what, we, what our job is, is to help people build a better or uh, worthwhile life. And so what you do is, is initially find out what is getting in the way, way of that. Why do they feel their, their life is somehow really hard, as Gary said? Um, uh, you know, is it, is it becoming to, you know, beginning to feel not worthwhile to them? And then using all of our background and all of our uh, knowledge, 
build something for them specifically. So uh, be some specific. People, Give me an example. When you well, say some build people something. some people do really need that social support, and some people, you know, as Gary said, a, a support group is the key that, that unlocks everything. Some other people though are very, very private and it's and it might be something about eating with their in front of their grandchildren. So they don't want to scare their grandchildren. So I had one lady that was an issue. And so it was about overcoming that. And that was very much a very behaviorist um, approach which which is literally exposure. Practicing a little bit at a time, starting with small things, moving up into something more um, more difficult, more challenging for her, and noticing that their reaction wasn't to run away from grandma. Could yeah. I just check I understand that you encourage this person to eat in front of their grandchildren, something easier and then getting harder and harder so it could be potentially more messy or more dribbling and just uh, yes. get more confident about eating in front of their grandchildren? 100%, if that is the issue. Okay, but, but, but the real difficulty with psychological strategies is that nothing works for everyone. And so anything that works for one person may not work for everyone. And so really, you know, the way to see this is we're just tradies and you need to come and see, see the trade person. And if it doesn't work, the first thing doesn't fix your problem. You need to keep going and have, have another solution and, and try something else. Um, because not everything works for everyone. I just want to ask you, there's both the help you might need during treatment. I personally, when I had radiation therapy, 30 sessions, saw a psychologist to help me cope with uh, panicky feelings I had inside the mask by giving me something to think about. Yeah. But there's also people who can be distressed some years later. So, again, just briefly, what, how available is the psychologist in the cancer team, wherever people watching this are getting their treatment? Is it just in the first few weeks or can we have access to you later? What's, what's, it, what's it like in your situation? In, in ours, uh, it, it's unlimited. So if, you, if you've ever had any contact with, with the MARTA, the Psych Oncology Service is available to, to you, including your family and carers, even after, after someone passes away. So it's a, it's a very open service and very supportive. Uh, I'm not sure, I can't speak for others, but I think, uh, I think it's worth asking. Wherever you are, it's worth asking because you might be surprised how available it is. Should this be the single most important message out of this video for patients at the moment or people who are recovering? Um, ask for help if you need it. Find out what's available, ask. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, see it as uh, as problems to solve. And, you know, one of the ladies mentioned, you know, blokes being reticent to speak to someone. But, you know, as I say, if you've got something wrong with your toilet, you get a plumber. So see it as a problem to solve. Do you know what I mean? And that can be really helpful for blokes to just say, well, look, I'm feeling this way or I'm having trouble with this. You know, I'm avoiding that and it's getting in the way of living a good life for me, so do something about it. And that's that's the trade to see. I, I, I'll come to Harriana Dillon now, but I love the idea of a tradie. Yeah. That it's a, I think that's a very helpful analogy and, and you've got a toolbox of, with help in it. It's very interesting. But Harriana Dillon, can you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. So I'm a behavioural scientist at the University of Sydney and I work only uh, in research, um, but most of my research is really around 
what are the experiences of people with cancer and including head and neck cancer and how we might sort of help them deal with that and live the lives that they want to. Um, I guess my, you know, a lot of what I do is around that sort of um, putting the patient, the person with the, the illness at the centre of um, of the problem and trying to, to work out how we make the systems work better and also to, su- to support those people. Before I ask you about uh, a, a couple of bits of current or recent research that you think offers us some insight into this managing distress, I guess I'm interested in your sort of overview of do you think our health system gives equal attention and care to the emotional impact of cancer as it does to the physical? Yeah, it's a great question, Julie, and I think the, the, the short answer is no. Um, so we're very focused on disease sites and the diseases that people have and where that happens in their body. Um, and we're not looking at that as a whole of system problem. And really that's the impact of the illness on people emotionally, on their lives and how they live them. And I, I think, you know, we really need to look much more holistically at, at how different illnesses and treatments have an impact on everyone's all of everyone's life, all of those aspects, and they're all equally important um, to the person living with that illness. Tell us about a couple of bits of research that you think will inform both the patients and the family and also the clinicians watching this about about head and neck cancer and distress. So I think um, there are a couple of things that that really we're very focused at the moment and a lot of the work that we're doing around um, the impact of the mask and how we try and minimise that impact because it's obviously, as you heard from Gary in the video, how distressing having to have that mask, um, which is really there to keep him safe, but also actually meant that he couldn't move during the treatment and what that felt like for him. So could I just say, just for anyone who might be right at the beginning of their cancer experience, that uh, uh, the mask is a uh, personally created way to hold your head still while you have radiation therapy to tumours that might be in the head and neck. So it's really a safety mask to keep you still, but for some people it can be a claustrophobic experience to varying degrees of intensity, whereas other people aren't bothered by it at all. Uh, So that's the mask. But Gary kept going, the mask. (laughs) You had a sense that it was hard for him. But, yes, go on, tell us about the word. Really interesting, you know, and people don't necessarily know what their reaction to the mask is going to be until it happens. And it can vary over time. And we're not very good at actually predicting or working out who is is going to find the mask difficult to deal with when they first um, start their treatment or the people for whom it's going to get more difficult over time. And so I think we need to be much more aware of that. So actually being able to screen for the kind of experience that people have to ask them about how they're finding it and what the what the experience is rather than waiting until someone is in you know extreme distress and really finding it very difficult to cope with treatment um, before we start to help them with that because as Ben's already alluded to we've got lots of tools that we think can help with that and they're going to be different for different people and it might be different at different stages so it may be things like uh, one of the studies where we had um, had interviewed people who've had an experience with the mask they told us about the things that they did while they were having the treatment to help them cope with that and that for some of them it was um, 
singing songs that they knew or listening to music that they knew was the right duration for how long their treatment would take. It might have been counting the number of times the machine had clicked over um, and, and just kind of sometimes very simple things like that but enough to take the focus away from what they're feeling and in, in actually in the mask and distract them from that a little bit. And in that research, did people talk about asking for mild sedation, Ativan or Valium or something of like that nature? They sure did. And some people, for, for some people, they they used that all the way through their radiation treatment because they, they didn't feel that they could cope with it without it. Um, but that has other knock-on effects for, for their daily life and coming into radiation every day. It means that they then can't drive themselves home most of the time and and things like that. So it, it has an impact on the support that they need in, in practical terms. Um, other people were fine to start with but really felt that as things became more challenging because they were experiencing more symptoms, they actually needed more support then. And other people tried it once or t- used it for one or two sessions and then actually felt that they'd adjusted and they knew what was going to happen and they felt that they could cope with it without that. So, you know, it's not the same pattern of use of any of these kinds of tools that you've got to, um, for any one individual. It's, it's going to be different for each person. I think you've done research as well into uh, clinical staff working with head and neck cancer patients and the mask. Can you tell us about that and key lessons? Yeah, so I think some of the the work that we've done there is really that um, people feel very under um, prepared to, uh, to to deal with what the response is so that they, they know that some people are going to have difficulty but the systems that they're working in um, in terms of the time constraints and that they've got a backlog of people who are waiting to come into treatment means that they don't feel that they've got the time to take to, um, to deliver the support that perhaps they think people might benefit from. Um, and they also just a lot of the time, many of our allied health and and medical um, colleagues are not um, trained specifically in dealing with emotion and communicating with people and responding to those sorts of situations. So I think the work that, that Ben was talking about it actually helping everyone else in the team to develop the skills to respond appropriately, you know, in that moment can make a huge difference to people. And that was certainly some of the things that came through very clearly when we talked to health professionals. I'd, I'd love you to talk about whatever research you feel is most relevant, but, but the question I have, because I really only have time for one more example, unfortunately, is um, longer term survival. So they, people these days talk about survivorship you very rarely hear the term rehabilitation. Um, whereas in some other medical areas, if you have a, a stroke, people do talk about your emotional rehabilitation as much as your physical rehabilitation. So where are we up to in our thinking about rehabilitation and what is this word survivorship? Where, where are we going in the future of the research you want to see, the change you hope to see? So you've hit on one of my pet topics, Julie. Um, so I could talk about this for hours, but um, I think survivorship really is referring to what happens after your diagnosis. And we've kind of had this very limited perception of survivorship as being when you've finished your treatment. Um, and that's changing quite significantly, particularly because we have people who are in lots of different tumour groups who are living longer term without uh, with metastatic disease, so advanced cancer. Um, and it, it 
what that has tended to do is then start to make us think more about what's needed to support someone in their environment. And so rehabilitation is not a word that you hear very commonly in cancer. We talk about you, you treat the cancer and you manage the cancer, but we don't then rehabilitate the person. So this is really a new area for us, a new way of thinking. Um, and I, I, I think it's, it, we need that focus on what does someone need in the first month, the first three months, and the first six months after they've finished a particular type of treatment to help them get to the level of function that they had previously or, or to be as well as they can. Uh, and, and the other thing that I think is really interesting about survivorship, often you'll hear this term, the new normal. And that's one that worries me quite a lot because I think sometimes the implication is when you talk about the new normal that people take away and go, well, this is what my life is like now. And it, they, they think that things cannot be improved and that it can't get better. And what I think is really important is that we make it clear that whatever situation you're in now, there are things that we can do to deal with whatever the problem is that you're experiencing, whether that's a physical problem or an emotional problem. Um, you know, we want to pull out Ben's tools <laughs> and, and apply those to, to make someone's life as, you know, the best that it can. And I guess the other area that I think is really worth highlighting in relation to that is the fantastic work that the Cancer Council does. And so again, the, the helpline number, the 131120, is a place that you can go to, to to find out about a range of different sorts of interventions that are available in the community. And I think one of the challenges for health professionals is actually being aware of all of the things that are happening in community. And so I think that's a really important thing for people who are living with the, the disease or living beyond it to actually understand this is where you can go to, to sort of tap into some of the things that you may not hear about otherwise. Thank you. I'm just going to make a comment and then I'd love to hear from you, Ben, and then from Harriana about it. Uh, before we, we move to two other people who are also working with uh, uh, head and neck cancer patients to try and help them manage distress. And I'm seven years since treatment. I'm, I'm immensely grateful that I'm alive and uh, I was treated with radiation and chemo and I don't have external scarring. In that seven-year period, I've come back to this building we're in because uh, these videos are hosted by uh, St Vincent's uh, Hospital Sydney and the Kinghorn Cancer Centre and we're, we're sitting there now. I've come back here many times. I've had all sorts of tests. I've been, I've had things called PET scans that check if there's cancer in me. But I haven't had a single person ask me, um, have you managed to um, have a sexual life again? Um, have you managed to kiss? Um, uh, and I haven't had anyone say, how are you coping with the fear of recurrence? You know, the fear that it will come back. I, I, I'm actually not, I'm not meaning to complain. I'm more astonished by it. Um, fortunately, I do know about Cancer Council 13, 11, 20, and I have rung them and I have got help. But it's, what will it take to change the mindset of our multidisciplinary teams? Most of us are so grateful for their work that they deal with our emotional and sexual life as much as our physical recovery? That's a very good question. Um, what will it take, I believe, so part of the problem is specialisation. Everyone has got very specialised and I think a lot of the teams feel that that's, that's, oh, that's Ben's job. Ben will ask those questions, so I don't need to. And that's fine, except I don't see everybody and they do. So uh, I think 
it, it's about generalization, less specialization. Um, and the way, or, the way to do that, you're saying, what will it take? This is just my opinion, but I think, and we've had some good um, gains in this area, is if you can show how understanding about the patient's mental state, understanding about their sexuality and, and um, any other elements that make their life feel really worthwhile and important to them, how they impact on the very narrow medical thing they're interested in, because we know it does. If you can make that therefore part of looking after this narrow thing, suddenly they have to widen their view and say, I also need to look after and ask about these other things. That's, uh, I think, how, when you're asking what, that's, what will it take, I think it'll take that, to share, share responsibility via linking to the thing that they already feel responsible for. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. What about you, Ariana? Well, I think I largely agree with what Ben's been saying, and I think I would really add that the best person to deal with a particular problem for a patient and to help them find the right tools is the person that the patient connects with about that problem. And so that sometimes is not going to be Ben or me or someone from the psychosocial team. It may be the radiation therapist or it may be the nurse or the, you know, the dietitian who is, is dealing with that problem. So trying to make sure that those people are confident in their skills uh, to, to respond to those questions is, is really important. And then also giving them a pathway. So if they, they find that, a, that someone is asking them about a problem that they are not confident to deal with or they've kind of reached the limit of their knowledge, then they've got somewhere to say, well, actually, I can't, this is beyond my skill level, so let me find the next, take you to the next person and make sure that that referral happens. So those kinds of clinical pathways are incredibly invaluable for providing really practical guidance to people in their own hospitals and systems about what's available. Both takes confidence, doesn't it? Because it either you have the confidence to have the conversation or the confidence not to just close your ears and pretend it didn't happen and do something about yeah, it. Yeah, and I think if I can just add, one of the, the big challenges for, um, for us is that we're you know, as, as professionals, we're all wanting to, to know the answer to the question. And there's some of these things we don't know. And I'm going, I, I don't know that I can fix this problem for you, but we can certainly help with some tools around that. Um, and sometimes there isn't a solution, but most of the time it'll be something that we can do to alleviate it a little bit. So having the confidence also to say, actually, I have no idea, but let's, let me find out. Look, Ben Britton, Harriana Dillon, thank you so much. 